Good evening, everyone. Take a moment. Let's go ahead and open our Bibles. We're about to get into the preaching of God's Word. I have the privilege of reading it tonight, and then Pastor Tim Ackley is going to come up and, and share his message and, um, and, and expand upon the Word here. So open your Bibles. If you don't have a Bible, there are pew Bibles behind every one of your chairs, your seats. Uh, page 876. We're going to be in the book of Acts. So we are back in the book of Acts, chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. We're going to start in verse 16. So let's get those Bibles open. Acts 17, verse 16, page 876 of your pew Bibles. This is Paul in Athens. Verse 16. Now, while Paul was waiting for them at Athens, his spirit was provoked within him as he saw that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with the Jews and the devout persons and in the marketplace every day with those who happened to be there. Some of the Epicurean and Stoic philosophers also conversed with him. And some said, what does this babbler wish to say? Others said, he seems to be a preacher of foreign divinities because he was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. And they took him and brought him to Areopagus, saying, may we know what this teaching is that you are presenting. For you bring some strange things to our ears. We wish to know, therefore, what these things mean. Now all of the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there would spend their time in nothing except telling or hearing something new. So Paul, standing in the midst of the Areopagus, said, Men of Athens, I perceive that in every way you are very religious. For as I passed along and observed the objects of your worship, I found also an altar with this inscription, To the unknown God. What therefore you worship as unknown, this I proclaim to you, the God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man, nor is he served by human hands, as though he needs anything, since he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. And he made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place, that they should seek God in the hope that they might feel their way toward him and find him. Yet he is actually not far from each one of us, for in him we live and move and have our being. As even some of your own poets have said, for we are indeed his offspring." Being then God's offspring, we ought not to think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image formed by the art and imagination of man. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent because he has fixed a day on which he will judge the world in righteousness by a man whom he has appointed. And of this he has given assurance to all by raising him from the dead. Now when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. But others said, we will hear you again about this. 
So Paul went out of their midst, but some men joined him and believed, among whom also Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with him. It's the word of God. Thank you, Mike. Well, normally, if I had my druthers, I would be standing down there closer to you. The reason I am up here is because we record the message on Saturday evening. So right now it's being recorded, and that is shown to our whole church and people actually even outside of Pennsylvania that watch these sermons and engage in this church from even far away. So tonight we record the message that goes out through YouTube, through Facebook, through Vimeo, all kinds of ways that this message goes out. So I want to encourage you, today we're going to see the Apostle Paul boldly declare the gospel. And he's going to declare the gospel in an intellectual center of the ancient world. So these are really smart people, and he's going to be telling them about the gospel. What is the gospel? It is that God loves you so much that he found a way, he made a way rather, to save you. And the way that he saved you, the way that he can save you, is by sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for your sins. And he raised Jesus back to life as evidence, as the first one to be raised, as a promise that you too shall be raised as well. So Paul is going to step on, well, let me put it in a modern analogy. He's going to step onto the stage of Yale. He's going to debate the chair of the philosophy department. And God might call you, my friends, or myself, to be his witnesses in a place that would ordinarily terrify us. Think about that for a moment. What kind of people would terrify you to share the message of Jesus too? Now think through that a little bit. You might run to remember that a witness of Jesus is not someone who knows the Bible so well that they know every verse that belongs in the Scripture. A witness is someone who tells what you know. You share what you know. And what we know is what God has revealed in His Word, and that is what we share. Now, I want you to think about that. Everybody here, think about that. What do you know about God? That is what we are to share. That is what you are to share. What I know about God is what I am to share. And so we get to Acts 17, and we get to verse 16. So I want you to have your Bibles in front of you. I want you to pull those out. And we're going to find Paul all alone in the city of Athens. It's a Greek city in the ancient world. He's waiting for his missionary partner, Silas and Timothy, to arrive. But Paul, well, it might seem that he's actually there on vacation. He just came out of a very difficult ministry period. But he won't sit idle. And instead, he goes out and he tours the Greek city, and he is in the city of Athens. It's 50 miles east of the city of Corinth. And let me tell you just a little bit about Athens. Athens, Athens was a city 
that had reached its peak of glory 500 years earlier, they are now in a very slow decline. But it's still an amazing city. It's the birthplace of democracy, if you can believe it. They had elected officials. It's the first place in the world that you saw a, gov a, a democratic government at. It was a center of literature, of the arts, and as we're about to see, it was a center of philosophy. This is where the intellectuals would go to present new ideas. Paul himself, the Apostle Paul, very educated at the famous University of Tarsus, uh, he begins to tour the city. Now, I want you to see what verse 16 says. Now, listen, you got your Bible in front of you. Everybody look with me. Verse 16. He walked throughout the city, and he became more and more angry. Why? Because verse 16 says the city was full of idols. And his spirit was provoked within him. So his spirit is provoked. By the way, that word provoked is the word that gives us peroxide. You know, when it bubbles up, when it's poured on an infection. His spirit is bubbling up. He's getting agitated. He's getting angry. He's not waiting for people to come to him. He's going out in the city. He is taking the gospel to the people, to the Jews, and to the Gentiles. Now, let's get our bearings for a moment. Christian brother and sister... Are you waiting for people to come to you, or are you going to the people? you got to go to the people. We are the sent ones. And so we go to the people with a message of hope in the gospel. He goes to the synagogue. The synagogue is where the Jewish people would pray and worship. And then he goes each day, did you see that? Each day to the marketplace, which is where the Gentiles were. And it's not long before his gospel begins to have an impact. It begins to draw people. And all of a sudden, the philosophers of the city take note. Now, here's what philosophy means, okay? Philo, everybody say philo. That means love, like the city of Philadelphia is the city of brotherly love. You've got Philo, you've got Sophie. Everybody say Sophie. Sophie. That is wisdom. So philosophy is simply this. It is the love of wisdom. The love of wisdom. And all of a sudden, all of these lovers of wisdom, all of these lovers of knowledge begin to take note. There is in our city a new teaching. And the Apostle Paul is the one that's been delivering it. And some of them tune him out. Some were curious. But we know what Paul was talking with people about because look at verse 18. Everybody get in your Bibles. Look at verse 18. He was preaching Jesus and the resurrection. You see, Paul had met Jesus. Paul was saved by Jesus. Paul was taught by Jesus. He is sharing to them. He is telling them what he knew and his form of witnessing was preaching. Now, I want you to hear something for a moment because this is the beauty of the church. There are people that tell the gospel story through song. And there are people that tell the gospel story through art. And there are people who tell the gospel story through poetry, through 
through narrative storytelling. There are people that tell the gospel story through teaching and writing. Paul is telling the story of the gospel through preaching. But always, and I mean always, an effective witness of Jesus is one that centers on the death and the resurrection of the Son of God, Jesus Christ. Now, I want you to hear that again. Everybody look at me for a moment. I know there's a little bit of distraction going on. You know what? I've always found this, that when there is distraction, that is usually, almost always, the devil trying to get us to not listen to the gospel story. So I want you to hear me as I reiterate what I just said. Every single effective opportunity to share the gospel will be when you center on the death and the resurrection of Jesus. Now, can you say that with me, or at least can you think that with me? If you're going to be effective in the sharing of the gospel, it's going to be when you talk about Jesus Christ. But some of the philosophers conversed with him. Did you see that word? By the way, that word means bird pickers. Seed pickers. You know what it means? It means that a bird picks a seed here and picks a seed here and then brings it back to its nest to eat. Well, that's what they were doing. They're conversing. They did it all the time. Hey, we like a little of what you said, Paul, and we like a little of what Socrates said and a little of what Philo said, and we're going to bring it all in and we're going to form a new teaching. And this is what they're doing. They're conversing with him and they're trying to find something that they can bring in to make a new teaching out of it. And they're eagerly listening to all kinds of teaching. They want to take a little thought here and a little bit of thought there, and they're going to want to create a new religion, a new philosophy. By the way, that's happening all over America. It's happening all over this country. About every month, I keep hearing about a new way of thinking, a new philosophy, a new religion, a new way to God. We live in what's called a pluralistic society. And what that means, it means that God is at the top of a mountain, and there's a lot of paths that could get you there. It doesn't really matter which one you take. They're all going to get to God. That's what our country, that's what American Culture teaches that is not what the Word of God teaches. Jesus himself said, there is only one way to God. It is through him. So they take him to the Areopagus. The Areopagus, by the way, called Mars Hill. It's a 370-foot-high rocky hill. It's where all of these lovers of wisdom would hear all of these ideas and they would judge their merit. By the way, Socrates. How many have heard of Socrates? Socrates was a philosopher. Socrates was put to death in this city by the same type of people because, well, in part, Socrates taught that all of their religion was bunk. All of their religion was wrong. And so they made him drink a hemlock poison. And this is the city that killed Socrates. So now they bring Paul up on top this mountain, this hill, and they say, we want to hear your ideas. Oh, I think that's a little terrifying. Paul stood before them, and he said to them, verse 23, I've noticed in your city there's an altar 
with this inscription. This is written on your altar to the unknown God. And then Paul said to them, I know this God personally, and if you are interested, I could tell you all about him. And they say, yeah, we want to know about him. He's going to focus on three things. You ready? Here we go. Number one, God is the creator and the Lord of all. Now, don't let that go through your mind too easily. God is the creator and he is the Lord of all. Because I know probably everybody in here is going to say, yes, we believe that. But we're about to find out if your life or my life bears out that truth. Look at verse 24. The God who made the world and everything in it, being Lord of heaven and earth, does not live in temples made by man. We're in a city called Athens. It's full of temples. It's full of idols. And this was a completely new thought because the Greeks believed that each of their gods lived in the temple that they built for him and the idols represented them. If you wanted to meet a Greek god, you paid some money to the idol of that god and if you went to their temple of those, of those gods, then you could actually receive, they believed, a blessing. So Paul says, hey, the one who made everything, your unknown God, he doesn't live in temples made by man. You're not going to find your way to him through a temple. You're not going to be blessed by him through an idol. He's the Lord of heaven and earth, and he has made everything there is. And not only is he the creator of all, he is the rightful owner, the master, the Lord. He can do what he wants with his creation. Now, can you amen that? Now, be careful. Be very careful. God created you. Do you submit to that God that he has the right to take away your money. He has the right to take away your health. He has the right to take away your life if that's his purpose. Is that not what happened with King David in Acts 13 earlier that when David accomplished the purposes of God, he fell asleep, he died? Do you not see the fingerprints of God in that? God has a right to bless you. God has a right to withhold those blessings. God has a right to give you fame. And God has a right to take it away. God has a right to give you friends. And God has a right to remove them. He has a right to give you a job that you enjoy. He has a right to take that job away. You see, this is what Paul's saying. He is the creator and the Lord of all. He has a right to do what he wants with his creation. We've got to be careful not to amen that before our hearts come into agreement. Here's what Psalm 24, 1 says, the earth is the Lord's and everything in it. The world and all its people belong to him. Now, I want you to look at your neighbor who's sitting next to you, and I want you to say to them, you are God's Now I want you to take your finger and I want you to tap your chest and I want you to say, I am God's. He has the right to do with you. He has the right to do with me what he wants. Now can you amen that? 
He can do with us what he wants. He is the supreme authority. There are no challenges to his rule. If God takes you home before what you think is your time, he has the right to do that. If God does not answer your pleading prayer, he has that right as well as the right to grant your request. He is not obligated to your will. He doesn't have to explain himself. He doesn't have to do what we want despite our demands that he does. Haven't you ever prayed? in a time of crisis, and you plead with God, and your whole heart is behind that prayer, and nothing is happening, you're not hearing from God, you're not getting the answer from God, and you can feel in your heart some anger with God, some resentment with God, some frustration with God. Now you know what Paul is saying, that if God is the creator of all, and he is the Lord of all. He has the right to do with his creation what he wants. Can our hearts come into submission to that? Well, you know what worship is, right? Worship is the glad acceptance of God's rightful rule and the joyful willingness to serve our Lord and King no matter what even when our prayers are not answered. I will never forget a lady over a decade ago who was dying. She was young. She had two young children, both of them below 12 years old. And we went out there the night that she died. And the night that she died, we're in her home. We had anointed her with oil. We had been pleading with God to heal her. But it became clear to her and to us that God's purposes were, was to bring her home. And I will never forget my last sight of this lady, this woman of faith, was she's lying back on her couch, too weak to even sit up, but she had enough strength to raise her hand. And while we sang worship and praises to our God, she sang, she was too weak to sing. Her lips moved, no noise came out, but her hand was raised because she had gotten to the place, God, you are my creator, you are my Lord, you are perfectly right to do what you want. See, that assaults our pride. Because pride always moves us to exalt ourselves, to climb up the ladder, to elevate ourselves. And pride will move you and it will move me to say to God, you need to move over a little bit on your throne because I'm coming up to rule and if you don't like how I'm going to rule God, get off. That's what pride does. But worship... Worship is our declaration that we don't belong on the throne and that the one who is on there is perfectly good. That's the power of worship. But we're going to get to the second thing Paul says, that God is the sustainer of all things. And he declares this in verse 25, he himself gives to all mankind life and breath and everything. You know, scientists really don't know why our atoms, you can't even see your atoms, I can't see mine either, why they don't fly apart. Everything else should centrifugally fly apart. They don't understand, so they gave it a name. It's called the strong power. Well, I'll tell you 
what the strong power is because Colossians chapter 1 tells us that Jesus holds all things together. The fact that you're sitting there right now and you are not atomically flying apart and dispersing into the ether, into the wind, is the fact that God, through Jesus, is holding you together. He is the sustainer of all things. He does not just give life and breath and everything. He sustains it. Now, we just heard what was an attack on pride. Now we're going to hear what's an attack on our independence. God doesn't need people. Do you know that? You know God did not create humanity because he was lonely. He did not create you because he needed you. God has been perfectly happy within the triune Godhead of the Father, Holy Spirit, and Son from all eternity. He does not need us. We need Him. He does not need oxygen. He does not need food. He does not need sleep. But we need all of that. Listen, think for a moment. When you slept, the last time you slept, do you realize that God did not sleep or even slumber? You know what He did? He watched over you. And you might be saying, well, wait a minute. I'm just a little old me. He doesn't know me. He is infinite in his attention of you. All of God's attention is fixed on you all of the time. That's how amazing our sustaining God is. And we might be weak and needy, but God is more than enough. He is strong. He is self-sufficient Always, And it might be the most unsettling truth to our independent spirits. God needs nothing from us. He's entirely self-sufficient. But what does that actually mean that he's self-sufficient? Look at the screen, if you would. It means that he possesses an infinite, there is no end to it, degree of all of his attributes, his character qualities, in and of himself. He is complete in who he is. You don't add in anything to God. He's not missing anything. He's not lacking anything. He didn't bring all things into being because he was lonely or bored. He's never lacked satisfaction. He's never been short on joy. He never needed anything. He he doesn't need anyone to meet his needs. In fact, he says in Psalm 50, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. He owns it all. He needs nothing from us. And he owes us nothing. Now, I want you to hear what I just said. If it is true that God is self-sufficient, and it means that we don't give him anything he needs, that he's lacking nothing. It also means that he owes you and he owes me nothing. So you cannot come to God and say, well, God, I've cleaned up my act. I used to do drugs. I used to, do, I used to be an alcoholic. I used to be a womanizer. I used to uh, sleep around with men all the time. I don't do any of that anymore. Now you owe me. And God's going to say, wait a minute, you don't understand. I don't owe you anything. I've never lacked anything. You owe me everything. In fact, Job, the most righteous man in the Old Testament, had to come to grips with this. 
God asked Job, who has first given to me that I should repay him? Whatever is under the whole heaven is mine. Worship is now the glad proclamation. It is to gladly proclaim and serve the one to whom we owe everything. And Paul's witness now undermines not just the pride of those philosophers. Now it's the independence of those philosophers. But now he has one more thing to say to them that's going to put a death cry to their need to control. Number three. God ordains all things according to his will. Now look at verse 26 in your Bibles. God made from one man every nation of mankind to live on all the face of the earth, having determined allotted periods and the boundaries of their dwelling place. You know what he's saying, right? You know what Paul's saying. All of human history has been guided by God. It's been established by God. And all people, every single person, now look around, every person in this sanctuary have come from one man. His name was Adam. And what a blow that is to racism. Now, I want you to think for a second. Do you have an attitude that one race is superior to another? If you do, it's always your race that you think is superior to somebody else's. And if that racism is in you, and for a lot of people it is, you don't understand that God has ordained all things and brought all people from one man. See, there is no room ever for racism or prejudice or ethnic superiority in a Christian's heart. It must be killed. It must be removed. And you remove it by understanding who God is. And Paul is proclaiming that our God has ordained all things according to his purpose. You know what the Greek people viewed non-Greek people like? They called them barbarians. If you were Greek, you were accepted by the Greek. If you were not a Greek, you're a Roman, you're a Jew, you're a Parthian, then you were looked at as a barbarian. Can you imagine what's now happening in these Greek philosophers when Paul is saying that one man has issued forth all of mankind, and God's the one that not only caused that to happen, look what he said, he's determined allotted periods. Listen, you were born exactly when God ordained. And you were born in exactly the place that God ordained you to be born in. And he did it for a reason, verse 27, that they should seek God and perhaps feel their way toward him and find him. You were born when you were. You were born where you were because God's ordaining all of that to help you find your way to him. Well, you say that can't be true because God just does not know me. He doesn't see me. Yes, my friend, he does. You are absolutely precious to him. And he is a prayer away from being found by you. Now, Paul's going to bring his message home. And he says, now that I've introduced you to the unknown God, there's a response you've got to make. And that's true for you, and it's true for me. Look at verse 30. The times of ignorance God overlooked, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. Now, I want to, I want to reiterate what Paul's saying. You must repent if you are going to be saved. 
But what does that actually mean? Well, let me tell you this. When you came into this church building, you came in through a door. Well, let me use that metaphor. If you want to go into the, into the love of God, if you want to go into the salvation of God, listen, there's only one door. It is through repentance and believing in Jesus Christ. You must repent and believe. Repentance explodes the power of God's love on your life. And if you don't repent, there is no way for God to give you his love. There's no way for God to give you salvation. Repentance is a necessity. And the truth is that if you're going to repent, it's not just having a change of mind. It's realizing that you have sinned against your Creator and your Lord. You have defied Him over and over, and your, your sentence for that legally deserves to be death. But God said, I'm going to make a way for you to have life. And here's the only way you can have it. I will send my son who will die in your place. And the moment that you believe in him, he will give you, I will give you his life. But you've got to repent. Now, I bet a lot of you understand what I'm about to tell you. I know a lot of people that when they get caught and when consequences come to them, they feel sorry. That's not repentance. That's afraid of the consequences. That's trying to get away from the consequences. No, you see, you you need to understand the gospel. If you're going to repent the way that Paul's talking about repentance, the way that the Bible talks about repentance... It's not feeling sorry for what you've done because you're afraid that God's going to punish you. It's feeling grieved at what you've done because the one who loves you more than anyone, you just broke his heart. You broke God's heart. You won't repent until you get to that level. God, I love you. And I want to love you. And I realized that when I defied you, when I did what I wanted more than what you wanted, it came from a heart that says, I don't love you. I know, yeah, you're my creator and you're the Lord of all, but I don't want you to be my Lord and I don't want you in my life. And that, my friend, breaks the heart of the one who made you. And when you understand that what I have done has broken the heart of my God, it will move you to the cross of Jesus Christ. And you will receive life. Now, let me tell you what happens. Paul preaches this, and I'm almost done. Paul preaches this message on that Areopagus, that 370-foot rock. And watch what happens. Some are going to mock him and reject the gospel, verse 32. Now, when they heard of the resurrection of the dead, some mocked. Some will be indifferent, apathetic. They don't care. They're forever curious, but they're never willing to commit. Look at verse 32. But others said, we will hear you again about this. This is kind of interesting. We're curious to know more. But that's not salvation. That's not repentance. 
But some will believe and God will give them eternal life, verse 34. But some men joined him and believed, among whom also were Dionysius, the Areopagite, and a woman named Damaris, and others with them. Three different responses to the same message. And friends, when you share the gospel, when you share the good news of Jesus Christ, you're only going to get one of these three messages. Some are going to say no, and they're going to mock you for it. Others are going to say, I don't really care. I'm indifferent, but I am a little curious, but I'm not ready to repent. But some, my friends, will believe. They will repent. You cannot control which one is going to happen. You have no control. But I'll tell you what you can control. You can control telling them you can control sharing with them. You can control being a witness of Jesus. And as he takes you all the way to the end of the earth, as the gospel goes around the globe, you will see some believe. And you will be unswayed by those who mock you. And your heart will just pray for those who are indifferent. Well, God's no longer unknown to them. And guess what? Let me tell you something. I want all of your attention on this. I'm about to be done. Every one of you, not one of you, can walk out of here, not online and not in this building, and say that I still don't know who that God is. Yes, you do. I declared him to you. Now you've got to make a choice. Will you mock? Will you be indifferent? Or will you believe? And if you're going to believe that you will find your heart break, it will repent because you realized that the one who made you is the one who loves you more than anybody and you've been breaking his heart but he won't give up on you. So Christians, share what you know of God. Do it through poetry. Do it through conversations. Through, do it through preaching. Do it through singing. Do it through storytelling. Do it through your testimony. Share the good news of Jesus. Be a witness and just share what you know and all of you now know. God is the creator and the ruler of all. God is the sustainer of all. And God is the one who ador ordains all things according to the purpose of his will. And call people to repent and believe in Jesus. Amen? Amen. We're going to have the worship team come up. They're going to sing one more song. I want you to close your eyes for a moment while I close in prayer, if you would. All right, let's pray. Father, I thank you for this magnificent message of Paul in this city of Athens. Lord, it could not be more clear. And Father, I thank you that you have given us the task of, of understanding it, to study it, to know it, and to live it. And Father, I pray that you would be with every single Christian in this room, every Christian, every believer that's watching this sermon. Lord, motivate us, move us to share the gospel. Whatever way you move us to do it, whether it's through poetry, whether it's through preaching, whether it's through a sidewalk conversation, or in a conversation at work, or in school, or at college, or singing, or telling a story, 
Even if we don't know how to quote a lot of scripture, not once did Paul quote a scripture reference in that sermon, but he shared what he knew about you. You are the creator. You are the Lord of all. You are the sustainer of all things. You are the one that ordains all things according to your purpose. And that's what he shared. And while some mocked and some walked away indifferent, there were those who believed. And we give you glory and praise for that. Let us do the same. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.